This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Just a heads up, there's explicit language in this show. We're putting the Grammys behind us. We're moving on. Hi, everybody. It's Ann Powers, critic and correspondent for Empire Music. I'm here with my wonderful colleague, Sheldon Pierce. And we are going to not talk about the Grammys, not talk about, uh, what was her name? And uh, <laughs> Who's that? Who, who that person? <laughs> What's that person? Who's that blonde lady in the corner? We are going to talk about some new releases that are out this week and the big event that's happening this weekend, Usher at the Super Bowl. But listening to the new music out this week, this idea has been kind of bubbling up for me, which is what makes for a, a truly quote unquote great musician. I think the record we want to focus on right now, I mean, Brittany Howard, like embodiment of vibe, right? Am I right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially on this record, too. It really feels like she is tapping into an aura here. For those who might not know, Brittany Howard uh, became famous and beloved when her band, the Alabama Shakes, rose to prominence several years ago, broke through. Um, She is from Alabama, now lives in Nashville. She has released a new album called What Now? Um, Follow-up to her 2019 solo debut, Jamie, which actually got her several Grammy nods and actually a win for the single the sublime single stay high but yeah this new record what now i mean it's it has grabbed the zeitgeist i'm seeing interviews with her everywhere julie height did a great one for us glowing reviews including jill mapes did did one for npr music um just seems like it's going to be one of the records of the when late winter early spring whatever season climate change has given us <laughs> now right <laughs> But what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you've been hanging with this record a bit. Yeah, you know, I think I was initially struck by just how much looser it is than Jamie. Um, I I really felt like her debut was the definition of, like, the personal as political um, in, in, uh, in a soul record. It... I thought it was so much about identity, which was a really interesting turn for an artist who had fronted and spoken for a band before that. Right, um, and a band of like a black woman, yes, a black queer woman yes. with three white dudes playing behind her. Right? 100%. I mean, and speaking to that, it really sort of felt like she had to make that record. Like it yeah. was a record she had to get out of her system so that she could move forward artistically. And with that other way, she has given herself the freedom to do so many things on this record. I think it this record is like 100% without question groovier than the last one. Like you listen to Prove It To You. 
That song is a world away from Stay High. And I don't think there was anything like that on her last record. Yeah, I mean, Four on the Floor beat, she talks about it as, as a house song. <laughs> right. Actually, <laughs> which is not what we necessarily would have expected from this woman who started out kind of as a Southern rocker, in a sense. But, you know, a lot of people in talk about Brittany Howard as a musical master or a virtuoso um, she does play uh, many instruments. She leads her band, which includes incredible players like uh, Nate Smith, a great drummer, for example, is on this new record. Working with Sean Everett, she produces her stuff. This earns her comparisons to people like Prince. She herself invokes Stevie Wonder as an inspiration for What Now? just thinking about D'Angelo as I often do <laughs> but I'm thinking about D'Angelo in connection with this record am I off am I on what do you no think? no I think you're I think you're spot on I I can hear D'Angelo in something like patience I, mm. I hear him in red flags as like a foray deeper into funk it does feel sort of reminiscent compositionally of Black Messiah in some ways to me. I think she has this same magical do-everything feel that comes with D'Angelo records. Like, there is this idea of D'Angelo as, like, the master of his own universe. Like, you look at the credits and it's like, all all other instruments on this played by D'Angelo. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, right. this is D'Angelo. <laughs> and I think her stuff is starting to take that same sort of shape. Yeah, I agree. I mean, do you think it's going to hit her fans as hard as Jamie did? Because I, I admit the first few times I listened, which I'll even admit as as a D'Angelo stan, even Voodoo, it took me a few listens to really sink into into where he was going. But I thought, okay, this music is asking me to come to it. I think you're right. I do think there is a an almost mellower more like story forward feel to the jamie record that allows you to settle into it in a way that this record does not i think that's part of she has talked about like using healing bowls as transitions throughout this record to connect songs because she felt like it could be sort of sporadic in that way i mean i think the periodic cleansing is unnecessary i do find this record sonically adventurous but it does feel very much of a whole to me. That's not too far from my house, the Center for Alternative Therapy, where she got into those uh, healing, holistic singing bowls, metal bowls, and they form kind of a bridge, I guess, between songs yeah. throughout. And that makes me think about this question of musical mastery in a different way. And I wonder what you think about this in relationship to vibe, which is, do you think fans now are seeking almost like a like a healing from their music, like a mastery that's actually um, an intervention. I definitely think that's true. I, I think some of that is the result of the streaming economy turning music into a passive listening experience. Oh my God, 12-hour tracks yeah. of like, <laughs> you know, flute right. music for your dog to relax right. to. Right, there are like various like 
Endel playlist curated by electronic musicians that are designed to help you sleep. It's like music for background noise. But right. in that same vein, I do think there is this desire to have music wash over you, to be sort of pleasant and oral fragrant in a way that is like you don't have to challenge yourself too hard with it i think that is maybe the most difficult transition from jamie to this record is that jamie is a really challenging record it requires yes. you to like dig in deep and like sit there with her in a yes. way that this record maybe doesn't um but i think beneath that you know this is a breakup record it has a lot of layers of of that to unpack beneath all of the the subtle funk and soul um, that it uh, that flows through it. Oh man, this idea that a record challenges you by confronting you versus a record challenging you by creating a space you have to enter maybe that's yeah. like the difference yeah. and 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 i i just want to say Brittany, if you're listening i am not saying in any way that this is background music because actually oh, once you not. get into it the complexity of the emotions right yeah i'm so intense think of a song like every color in blue it starts out with that line here comes the feeling we don't talk about and then what i hear in the and just like the where her vocal goes, the way that song pushes a lot of edges in a quiet way, is ever the feeling we don't talk about. The longer you sit with this record, the more the writing sort of cuts can cut deep. Um, it's sort of subtler in navigating its subject than her last record, but it's all there, right there, uh, on the surface. I mean, you mentioned Every Color in Blue, which is just sort of heartbreaking, but also like the garden imagery of To Be Still, the near speechlessness of Prove It To You, this idea of like the music um, being able to speak where the lyrics fail is so powerful. Um, and I think sort of emblematic of some of this record. Like, it, it really is a record where the emotional through line of it is sort of underscored by the sound. Um, and I think it's interesting that musically, the story it's telling is of a self-assured artist that is absolutely locked in with her craft. And then lyrically, she's like sort of falling to pieces over this relationship that has flatlined. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we want our musical masters, our musical virtuosos to also be vulner like really vulnerable. Yeah. This is like a weird leap, but just as we wrap up talking about Brittany Howard's record, what now? Levy. I don't know. Levy. Like, like. You've had Levy on the board for quite some time. <laughs> I'm obsessed with you, little Levy. No, I, uh, because I think again, what to project on her fans i feel like what her fans want from her is on the one hand a demonstration that she's you know very skilled and she plays the cello and all this stuff but then it's that it's that vulnerability it's a dynamic within mastery right now and i'll be just super essentialist and please just 
shoot me down. Is this because women have moved into the space of dominating pop right now? I I do think that's a factor for sure. Maybe maybe the predominant factor. Um, but I also think there is in this era of like <laughs> brands sort of speaking to you like they know you, this desire to have even your greatest musicians be relatable. Um, be to be able to connect with them in a way that makes them feel human. Um, you you talk about that balance between like being super educated and being like available to your audience. I think about like Domi and JD Beck who are like classically trained musicians who don't seem to take themselves or anything else too seriously. And so in their music, you have this very, very clear compositional strength. Like these are like musicians, musicians for sure. But then you also have this playfulness of their ability to step outside academic rigor and engage with pop culture at large. And I think that is something that people are looking for from their stars and artists even. That is such a great point. And on that point, I think we're going to have to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some other musical virtuosi who are releasing records this year. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. When you book through Capital One Travel using the Venture X Card, you earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights. And you earn unlimited 2x miles on all other purchases. Plus, receive a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. The VentureX card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company. Since 1993, Lagunitas has been challenging the status quo, brewing innovative beer, and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of craft brews, cult classics, and non-alcoholic options, there's a seat at the bar for everyone. Bring the dog, too. Lagunitas Brewing Company, because every great song deserves a great beer. It's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Sheldon, I'm so glad you brought up Domi and J.D. Beck because they are a jazz duo. Yeah. They are, Nate Shenang called them a viral jazz duo <laughs> and, uh, and a great piece he wrote about them. Um, and I wanted to talk about a different jazz record that's, that's more down the line than Domi and J.D. Beck, but also I think kind of changes the tone or the rhetoric of how we think about mastery. And that's the new record from the vibraphonist Joel Ross. It's called New Blues. I know you've been listening to this record. It's been bringing me a lot of pleasure. What are your What are your first impressions? Yeah, you know, New Blues was inspired by Ross's exploration of blues history at the New School in 2020. Um, 
Blues music, like most roots music, has often been considered unsophisticated by a certain class of musician. Um, but Ross, with his ensemble, which features the great Emmanuel Wilkins on alto saxophone, Jeremy Corrin on piano, Colano Mendenhall on bass, and Jeremy Dutton on drums, he puts blues music in conversation with jazz and classical forms on this record. And you know, the vibraphone is not a traditional blues instrument, as many people <laughs> would understand just from hearing it. But I think listening to this record, it's pretty clear that he is tapping into blues being a spirit that is sort of like, not sort of, definitely tangentially connected to jazz, um, despite what naysayers would have you believe. And it's interesting to see that philosophy in practice here. The idea that um, a sort of raw, rootsy genre like blues is akin to classical and jazz. Right. And um, he also pays homage to uh, jazz greats and fellow kind of uh, questioners, mavericks. I don't know what the right word is. Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane. Yeah here who themselves channeled blues i mean you know yeah. obviously the jazz and blues lineages have always been in relationship to each other but yeah. i don't think anybody would put on this record and necessarily think blues you yeah. know i mean even as much as you might if you put on i don't know say a, a certain charles mingus record or something <laughs> like that um like where is the blues in this record i don't think he's thinking of blues in a straight line um, I think it is a very sort of spiritual connection. Um, but there, there is a more jazz forward. You, you call him more, more, he's, he's definitely not out, outside of the boxes, Domi and JD Beck. Um, right, right. But I mean, with the vibraphone at the center, I, I know we also get into that vibey air territory with yeah. this, like it definitely has a an oceanic quality you know especially when he's taking he, when ross is really stepping forward as the center of it don't you think the vibraphone is not an instrument that sort of bangs you over the head with its <laughs> no. force or power um but i think i mean think talking about mastery he has really great control of it both in conversation with his ensemble and sort of as a singular player i think of evidence it's such a stunning example of like the interplay between his instrument and drums and piano. And then there are like these seamless shifts um, between Joel Ross being out front and Emmanuel Wilkins being mm. out front with his sax. Um, but yeah. then like, as, as we talked about with New Blues, the title cut, um, it, that song displays his genius, I think. There's this yeah. twinkling, resonant intro that is spellbinding. And then the song just like builds, builds, builds around it and then explodes into something more. And like... There is never a moment of showmanship on this record that seems to imply that Ross is like out to prove himself as the leader. 
Um, I yeah. think his his level of control is in his restraint, in his understanding of his instrument and how to best maneuver it for the sake of those he's playing with. I'm glad you singled out Emmanuel Wilkins. He's one of my two favorite younger sax players along with Lakeisha Benjamin. And the thing about Emmanuel's playing is that it oh, yeah. is so eloquent as a form of storytelling, you know? And that's an interesting intersection with Joel Ross because I feel like Ross is eloquent on the level of mood or vibe. <laughs> so they're an interesting pair together. Yeah, I do think they play off each other in that way. Yeah. They work together a lot. So they know each other in this sort of intimate way that I think is very sort of important to this record. I think the sax is just as prominent on a lot of these songs as the vibraphone. Um, yeah. And I think that's how Joel wants it. That that sort of back and forth, that shift between sort of this almost like starry night feel that the vibraphone gives you and then this more story forward performing that Emmanuel Wilkins brings to his stuff. I mean, you think about his record, The Seventh Hand, which is just improvisation in conversation with the divine in just this really powerful way. Um, yeah. the, the way that the two of them work off each other is like a huge strength that elevates this record. This gives me a chance to make the tedious comparison that I feel I must make, which is with this really historically important record by a vibraphonist, Gary Burton's record, Duster, which came out in 1967 and which has similar interplay it's a totally different sound it's a totally different record but it makes an inquiry into a style of music country music just as this makes an inquiry into blues and it has incredible interplay between burton as a vibraphonist and the guitarist larry coriel and many people consider th that record sort of like the dawn of jazz fusion oh. would you call this this record a fusion record I'm not sure I would consider this record a fusion record. Joel Ross is just among a class of jazz musicians who seem to be thinking about jazz's place in the broader sort of pop cultural landscape, um, how it fits into contemporary music movements or right. historically in conversation with movements that have been maligned. Um, and and anti-jazz, like expanding the notion of what jazz is seems to be on the mind of a lot of these rising jazz musicians. And I think yeah. that's really interesting. It's super exciting, I feel like, yeah. you know, I, and it's 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 a step beyond the Lincoln Center Marcellus Brothers. <laughs> uh, we're going to keep jazz in this within <laughs> these definitions to to a moment that I'm loving. I'm absolutely loving and the style of music that. I think is obsessed with the idea of mastery is hip hop. I mean, yeah. am I saying like the most obvious thing <laughs> that was ever it's, said? It's, it's true. So it's fine to say it again. <laughs> well, you brought in a record for us to talk about uh, when I told you that I wanted to get into ideas about mastery and virtuosity. So um, tell me why you brought in this record by Boldy James and Nicholas Craven. So Boldy and Nicholas released a new record a few weeks ago. It's called Penalty of Leadership. Shots ring out. And it features Boldy in like a space that he's been occupying for many years now. How rich am I? 
I still can hear the air shots from the trailer hitch on that semi. SRT on that Gleek up. 33 in that Gen 5. My little niggas wigging to turn the beef to a river. The shots rang up. He's not an innovator by inner stretch, but that's not what he's doing. That's not what he's after. He is a rap purist. He loves the art and technicality of rapping. And I think he's an interesting case study for a lot of that stuff. First of all, a lot of people think about rap as uh, youth culture, and it is that, but he he started his career, he really got on when he was like 30, he's 41 wow. now, and he's probably as good as he's ever been. Um, I mean, he's coming off a car accident that left him with a broken neck and a damaged spine. And, and I he mean, made this record, like, he made this yes. record right after that. <laughs> right, I mean, he, right was after. he even able to move aside from... He, he's mouth? He, he talked about after the accident, it left him unable to use his hands for a while. He was forced oh to God. freestyle, which I think really shows his commitment to craft. Um, but I, it's sort of interesting because we talk about rap as being ex obsessed with technicality in a lot of ways and notions of like what is real hip hop have been embedded in that conversation for since the, since the dawn of the genre. Um, and a lot of that has been sort of hot, fast moving, uh, very, a lot of internal multisyllabic schemes, like thinking a lot about words and, and the Eminem lyrical miracle oh, sort yeah, of totally. brand of rap. And I think coming out of battle rap, right? Like it's sure, an athletic, yeah. it's basically an athletic competition. Yeah. The, the cypher as, um, sort of blood sport um from right, the corner right um but i think boldy raps so subtly he's got this sort of deep sleepy voice he never seems to like exceed like 10 miles per hour like he he is just cruising at all times Shots ring out. Bo James, I'm the Hancho. The weed from Humble County, but the blow came for Toronto. Open road on that highway. Slow lane in the Tahoe. Roll with the 50s on boys, but don't fuck with no 5 up. 7 6 with the gang and no Canadians. We bounce up out that cutting up that Draco at your cranium when shots rang out. And know we brought out Kimmy K again. She quick the 50 through your neighborhood and take the spin. And there's a subtlety to the way that he operates that really disguises how technical I think a lot of his stuff is. And he's not showy in that way, but still demonstrates just that same kind of mastery. He does refer to his uh, his linguistic skills. In, I mean, like there's a track called No Pun Intended, <laughs> right. for example. And in the video, it's funny because it's a very kind of, you know, maybe fake, low, low, uh, quality or whatever, <laughs> you know, lo-fi video, but, and all these intercred images of him, like, you know, making purple drink or hanging out with his friends or whatever. There's also these images of him in front of what looks like an old master painting. <laughs> and, you know, he is arguing for his skills. I yeah. think at times. I, I think he's, he's very much a rapper's rapper. You could pull pretty much any boldy record out of the catalog and get a sense for what he's doing. There aren't great variations in tone or like objective on his records. But I think the way that he raps is the, the charm of what he's doing. 
He has right. such a great understanding of how his songs work, how his voice works, how to be technical in his style. And it's that sense of restraint to me that displays his mastery. The idea that he is so in command that he can rap at any at that speed and still be great. And I, I love the stuff that he's done now. And you don't have a lot of guys at his age sort of hitting their peak. I think he's in his prime right now, which is saying something coming off of his his uh, his accident too. Well, what about um, Nicholas Craven? Like, how does his production factor in here? Yeah, I mean, Boldy, he loves a good soul sample. Yeah, uh, who he, doesn't he, really? <laughs> yeah, and 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 Nicholas Craven loves to just loop up vocals into this tight coil that yeah. allows Boldy to just like just steamroll through a lot of those pockets. Where we at with We tune them out all of the smells and for later sound. Ocean Prime. With the season salad, but the dress in the towel. You had to break out the wheel skills, took a day to count. Plug out the same time. From the virgin to the Cayman Island. It's yacht life for this. Um but there is also just like a subtle balance to a lot of his bars. He's just like riding this wave, tottering on the edge, front to back in his schemes. And he maneuvers through these like subtle, almost dustily crafted beats in a way that makes him almost seem like regal, but like yeah. regal in like the old school Cadillac fashion. <laughs> like, um, and you know, he is, <laughs> totally. he is a, De he is a Detroit, Michigan guy. So a Motor, yeah. Motor City guy. Um, so I, I really think that they have just such a, such an understanding of how to bring balance to the other, um, and how to really make the way that Boldy uses his voice resonate. Well, you talk about Baldy as a rapper's rapper, and and this is just, again, I guess I'm just throwing spaghetti at the wall today, Sheldon, because I know that you can help me uh, figure out if I'm completely insane. But that slow, damp style that he has, it, it sort of connects to me with what some of the most popular women are doing out there. Not Megan. She's, she's the, our battle rapper, right? But like an ice spice, or even like a pink pantheris, the the the, or I know you love shy girl. Yeah, these women who are using a more of a quiet intonation, almost like a horrorcore intonation <laughs> at at times. Like there's a there's a quiet eeriness to what they do. What do you think? I mean, can we hear? I, I'm I want to bring them together. <laughs> The, the very male idea of the rapper's rapper and then these women who are also rapping in a very different style than what we usually think is the ultimate, you know, great rapper. Yeah, I do think sort of ease is at the center of that. Like, and, mm, and to yeah. your point about competition, pushing back against the idea of competition. Um, 100%. So, so much of the competitive edge of like rap technicality has been about like force using your raps as a blunt object essentially to attack an opponent um and in that sort of displaying your superiority to them uh, when i think about ice spice i think about the opposite like she mm. couldn't care less what you right. think about her <laughs> raps or anything else and she she is just like performing at a distance 
from her audience in most of those songs. I think Boldy is operating in a similar space too. He is so assured of his style, so confident in what he's been doing. And I mean, he's been operating in this mode for 15 years now. Right. He, his raps give off this air of like, I, I don't even need you guys to listen to me at this stage. Right. I know what I have. I know what I am. I perform this way because I'm that good and you're going to deal with it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really fond of that kind of stuff being so self-assured that you are embodying a style that is mm. at odds with everything else that is happening. That connects with what we were talking about with Brittany Howard as well. Do you feel like there's a, I don't know, something about the, the, the exploded nature of music culture now that allows for a space for these kinds of um, don't care virtuosos, as you might call them? <laughs> I don't know. You know, maybe like in the grand scheme of things, uh, a lot of folks are just like, so fed up with the state of things they're just like be your own person like right. embody whatever it is you embody um there there's a lot of people in the wake of sort of the the nikki um and megan beef which is sort right. of very much give rapid. us a five second <laughs> summation for anybody who's been keeping track of it yeah uh megan the stallion sort of took a subtle shot at Nicki Minaj on her single hiss. Nicki didn't take too kindly to that and sort of went on a social media campaign yeah, in the weekend campaign after. Campaign is a kind word. Yeah. <laughs> to uh, targeting uh, Megan in response and then released her own sort of long ranting diss track in response. And it was very much like old uh, 2001 <laughs> Jay-Z Versus yeah. Nas um, <laughs> totally. play, playing into like classicist uh, rap ideals. Right, but right. I do, I, in, in the wake of that, you know, I've seen a lot of people being like, you know, this is, this is corny. Like, <laughs> why, why, why are we even doing this? Like, there are bigger fish to fry. Um, and I think a lot of artists in recent years have embodied this idea of like stepping back from like, uh, a, a hyper aggressive and honestly even like that that super masculine yeah. uh, mindset and pushing towards something that embraces uh, a more carefree nature. I see something similar in like the country Americana roots world, believe it or not. I mean, we have our incredible players. We have Molly Tuttle, for example, the bluegrass flat picker, who's just an astounding player, but also presents herself in a playful and fun way as she's taking on those traditions. But then we have, you know, we have Kara Jackson making a folk record that is not, doesn't play by anyone's rules. That was my favorite record of last year. Or Casey Musgraves, one of the biggest stars in country or not in country, I guess, anymore. But, you know, she is, she, she, her voice is very different. Like, you know, she's all about the vibe. I'm not saying she's not a master, but like she plays it in a totally different way. And by the way, Casey, thanks for uh, bringing us a new record in the near future. And we even have a new song. It's called Deeper Well. My Saturn has returned. When I turned 27, everything started to change. 
but yeah, I, I, in the same, it's sort of interesting you say that because I think a lot about little Yachty. He was sort of, as he came into the game, this like bubblegum trap star that existed at odds with like the way that people traditionally think about rap. And he was ridiculed for that. As a result, he sort of pushed back and tried to be the rapper that everybody was asking him to be and his music was worse for it. Right, um, right. <laughs> over the last few years, he's been able to sort of grow into himself. I mean, he released a psych rock record. Um, but the music, even the rap that he's done in recent years, that has been more an extension of that early stuff, but just more competent, more thoughtful, um, a little bit more under his control has been the best stuff that he's done. And that stuff is a direct, like, it, it's directly at odds with traditional ideas of, like, how rap should be made, what kind of stuff you should be doing, and <laughs> like, sort of, like, towing the company line, essentially. And I think as we continue to go on, I want to see more of that. I want to see more rappers sort of deviating from the idea of what traditionalist rap is. I feel like the, the next generation idea of this doesn't have the openly oppositional tenor all the time. It's, it's not... We're sure. going to rip it up and start again because we don't care about it. It's we're going to just go over here and make our own world. Maybe that's an Internet effect. Everybody can live in their own little world, you know. For sure. Yes. Just sort of the fragmentation of culture, allowing you to be in your own corner and, and play by your own rules. Exactly. Um, and do things as you want to do them and not have to engage with the mainstream discourse if you don't want to. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to enter a completely different realm and consider what it takes to be a master of drone. I wanted to shift our conversation a little bit to talk about our roles as critics and trying to identify musical mastery, because one thing that I find very challenging about this moment is that... Uh, there's a lot of music out there that's uh, featuring instruments or uh, or just styles that I didn't expect to hear in pop, and that I don't always know how to judge. And you know, we have uh, at least on the indie level, you know, we have all these kinds of players breaking through, like harpists. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like this wonderful record by Nyla Hunter that came out earlier this year, and in jazz, Brandy Younger. Um, flute players, obviously famous ones like Lizzo and now Andre 3000 touring the nation with his flute in hand, yeah. playing in taxi cabs all along the way, <laughs> I'm sure. And, and even whistlers, like there's this woman, Molly Lewis, she's a, a champion whistler. This, for me, raises a question, like, how do I know if Molly Lewis is truly the greatest whistler? And there's a record out this week uh, 
that epitomizes this for me. It's by the composer, sound artist, and pipe organist, Colleen Malone, and it's called All Life Long. Here's a track on this record. It's called No Sun to Burn, and I love the way this track gets into the droney side of what Colleen Malone does. That's a big part of what she's done on her previous records. Um, so I just wanted to start there to, to like listen to how she plays with, with tones. Kali is married to one of the guys in the magnificent Titanic drone noise band Sun. Stephen O'Malley, uh, her husband and collaborator, he actually plays some of the accompaniment on this. They, they perform different organs dating from the 15th and 17th century. That's wild. Um, which gives you <laughs> some sense of the tonal range of this record. I think listening to this album is an interesting exercise when thinking about mastery because you have songs arranged for organs and then brass, songs for organ and then voice. You have ideas sort of spiraling out across instruments. And so it seems very sort of compositionally focused and right. maybe not like uh, a, a, a sense of like technical mastery on the organ. But I mean, knowing that organ playing can be physically and emotionally demanding should give like anyone, even a layman, an appreciation for what is happening here. I mean, you can hear her executing her vision of patterns and mm. harmonic convergence and just like tone as like a weighted blanket. Um, and I think execution is its own form of mastery. Oh, well said. Well said. I think that's really true. I mean, it's she's framed this in interviews um, talking a lot about athleticism and about how her dad was uh, a mountaineer when she was growing up uh, in Colorado and would take her on hikes somewhat against her will. <laughs> she was like an arty kid, but she'd be out there climbing mountains with him. A direct quote from Kali Malone is, there's an athleticism in the introspection that goes with creating art. And that is so... That's so interesting to me because when we were talking before about rap and athleticism, I, I mean, I, certainly Nas is an introspective artist, for example. But you're talking about the like old Jay-Z Nas rivalry. To me, that's all. It's very like forward. It's very out. It's very oracular. Almost, yeah. you know, I am in your face with my booming voice. And this right. marriage of athleticism and introspection that feels so now to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in terms of being out front, I don't think you can be more out front than the tones that are produced by the organs on well, this Well, good point. Like, good point. I, I, I'm not sure you can hide from them. I mean, you talk about it being heavy. You talk about right. the drone influence. And I mean, it is just all around you like an air raid siren. And I will say it's, it's not, I think intentionally, it's not as immediately pleasing to the ear as right. her last organ record, 2019's mm. The Sacrificial Code. But there is like a song like Fastened Maze is sort of as soothing 
as it is enveloping. It's interesting to hear this as organ music and think about like the organ as it comes to mind in the popular imagination, be it like Cameron Carpenter or like the Hammond in like gospel music. Like, or though, but Rick Wakeman in, you know, in yes, in a cape being a wizard. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I, I mean, that I, this is, there are moments of this that like, don't even necessarily scan as melodic, which I think is really sort of interesting in thinking about mastery, thinking about skill and, and control over music. There, it just, a lot of it can feel like a fog that you're wading through. Yeah, um, that's beautifully said. I love that. I <laughs> but love I mean, that. I mean that, that to me is like the power of its appeal. Like hmm. she is able to generate just like these huge storms of sound. Um, and, and it's really powerful when it's like pressing up against you. And then counter countering that with these very delicate, almost um, medieval sounding uh, vocal. Oh yeah. Multi-vocal tracks or the brass tracks. You know, I'll just say like, for me as someone who always questions my own authority, for whatever reason that might be. You should. <laughs> well, thank you. But I, I mean, th there's something about this record that gives me permission to listen to it. I don't have to be an expert, yeah. you know. I don't have to know the history. Now, maybe it opens a door to discovering more about the music she's, you know, the lineages she's tapping into. And maybe that's another characteristic of mastery or virtuosity now i mean the word mastery i've been using it all all this time in our conversation and it itself is a problematic word i yeah. mean you know what does it mean to be a master there are a lot of negative connotations sure. to that word so you know maybe the one way that mastery is being redefined is that uh, it's becoming a more open space you know i i think mastery has been a sort of oppressive word in a lot of music spaces for a long time and has been used to sort of alienate people who were deemed proficient in a certain way and uh push out musicians who didn't sort of fit that standard um but you know a lot of people have always said, I mean, if it sounds good, you're not playing it wrong. That's so true. And so, <laughs> and so I do think, I mean, you, you think about somebody like Tom York, who he, he, Johnny Greenwood has encouraged him not to learn how to play music. Right. Um, because he likes the sort of interplay between their sort of like highbrow and like organic like learn on the fly styles and the way that those, that marriage works. And I mean, it, it, if it works for one of the greatest rock bands of, of this century, then I, I don't see the problem with it. But thinking about Callie Malone and this idea of like mastery of influence, I do think it's sort of impressive that you can listen to this record and almost immediately understand how impressive it is. Mm -hmm. And then also sort of think of it as a gateway to trying to better understand music like it. Um, in opening a door into this kind of sound, into this kind of scene for somebody who may not necessarily understand it on the first go, like that takes a level of mastery in its own right. And where we're at now makes me think about 
these two rock records that we have now. Sonic Youth is just releasing The Walls Have Ears. It's a reissue of a bootleg that they recorded in 1985. And Dinosaur Jr. frontman Jay Maskus has a brand new solo record called What Do We Do Now? That one came out last week. And what you're talking about, Sheldon, makes me think of that era of rock, you know? I mean, you're citing Tom York and Radiohead, but I'm thinking about like that 90s moment, 80s into the 90s moment when indie said, indie rockers were like, we're not going to play a Steve Vai style (laughs) guitar solo, right? We're going, I mean, okay, some people did, like High Pearl Jam. Love you guys, love you guys, (laughs) but... uh, but it was like, we're going to f- mess with feedback. And maybe what we're in now is like, there's a long arc from then to now. I mean, an idea like that opens up the the floodgates for so much more great music than to say, oh, you have to be educated in a certain way. You have to perform a certain way. You have to be a certain kind of artist to make great music. Like saying, no, we're going to do it however we feel is the best way to do it is such a way to inspire the masters of the future. Totally, completely. Well, before we say goodbye today, though, we do have to talk to a, I was going to call him a master of the past. But he, I can never think <laughs> of is, Usher as being that old. He is a master old. of the past. He is. <laughs> Just say it. Let's be, let's be honest about Usher today. A master of the past, a master of the R&B tradition, Usher is taking over the Super Bowl. And... I mean, he really is like an old school king, right? I mean, I remember seeing him when he was a teenager, when he first came out. And I mean, even at that point, he was not just the singing and the vocals and the music, but the dancing. And um, here he is at the Super Bowl. I think, I mean, to me, it totally made sense. To me, he's that huge. But what do you yeah. think it means that uh, in, a, in our era of vibes and, and challenging ideas of virtuosity, here we have kind of the classic Vegas performer? <laughs> it, I mean, you know, it does make me wonder about, like, the future of male R&B Ooh. singers because you, you look at the crop of those guys and you're like, could you imagine any of them – 15 years from now performing a Super Bowl halftime show. And I'm not sure that Mm. you can. Um, It's interesting because Usher in particular, it almost seems like his relevance is tied directly to him being a song and dance showman at this point. Because it's like, I mean, when you think about the music, he has been a singles artist for at least the last 15 years. His last great album was 20 years ago. Um, and it's like, you wouldn't say that people are clamoring for a new Usher album the way that they are for, say, Although Rihanna. they are getting one. Um, they are getting one. This they are getting one that is with, coming yeah. out with, with the performance. <laughs> right. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see if he can muster up any sort of inspiration for that record. But it is interesting, I think, in talking about mastery, like, so much of his mastery to me is tied up in performance, yes. in his ability. You think about the Vegas residency, which you mentioned, his ability to always be on night in, night out. Like he is an R&B standard bearer. 
He understands that he is sort of this seasoned performer at this stage in his career. And he sort of leans into that expertise. He's like, I'm going to give you a full night of Even at the tiny desk, he made a, an expert gesture that, of course, became a huge <laughs> meme. And that, right. that was the show of his mastery. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's so understanding of the relationship to his audience, the relationship between him and his own catalog at this stage. He knows what the people want to hear from them. He knows what he needs to give them. Um, and I mean, you look at him in any of his performances, it's hard to take your eyes off him when he's on stage. Um, and I think that is at the center of his artistry his ability to make you remember that he is a star. It's very impressive for an artist on in this stage of his career, who is like, at this point, he's verging on legacy yeah. status, to sort of feel as central to the conversation as he is. I mean, to even end up in this position in a Super Bowl halftime show sort of speaks to his, his remaining relevance. But it's a great point that it's hard to imagine, you know, many of, especially the male R&B singers. I'm thinking about Black. I'm thinking about uh, Omar Apollo. I don't know. Uh, Daniel Caesar. Giveon. Uh, I mean, these are yeah. none of them ever held the spotlight yet the way Usher does. But I'm even thinking about Super Bowl halftime show veteran The Weeknd, whose yeah. who's halftime show was honestly a bit of a mess, right? Like. Yeah. I don't it, know. So it's interesting. I think the weekend is trying. You know, the it, there is no era. I think Usher is unquestionably still sitting on the R and B king throne um, and is ruling unopposed at this moment, which is part of why we see him getting this big Super Bowl bid. Um, the weekend would like to believe he's next up. I think I, he's definitely successful enough at this stage. Maybe talented enough. But he just has not displayed that he can be the same gravitational force that Usher is or that he is in the same level of virtuosic performer. Right. Um, you mentioned his performance. It was a lot of smoke and mirrors, literally, and <laughs> didn't really leave you awestruck in the way that Usher can. And I'm not sure that we have anybody coming down the pipeline that can be that answer. Yeah. I mean, it, he didn't even do like cool and diffuse with mastery the way that Rihanna did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, her halftime show, she also is like, I mean, she's not a traditional. She, I think she could make conventional, melismatic, emotionally forward music. She's proven that on some of her ballads. But you know her whole thing is being so cool that I mean, so cool it's hot, right? You want to you want to talk about mastery? I think Rihanna's mastery in like she knows herself and yes. she never steps outside of herself completely. I think the weekend uh, he knows himself, but he is trying to be something he is not yet. Completely, um, completely, and, and and that is sort of the difference between the two of them. I don't think it's necessarily that the weekend can't get there. Um, I think it's going to take some doing, though. And you watch a star like Usher, you're like, this is a person that belongs at the Super Bowl halftime show. Totally. Nobody, when he was announced, nobody questioned that. And so it's going to be a question of whether or not any of these other guys can become the same type of 
like in the moment single spotlight entertainer that he is who can sort of embody their catalog in a way that almost feels refreshing to I mean audience. Bruno Mars I know we you know I, I don't want to just be throwing names out I don't know about Bruno uh, Mars I, I respect <laughs> the talent a lot I think a lot of the Bruno Mars stuff feels like cosplay to me and no, so I know. I'm, I'm not sure that he is in that same tier of artists I think maybe he's closer to it than the weekend is at this stage. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, you know, I'm just, I just would like to see a bit more from these boys. Uh, <laughs> take, take it up just a, just another notch. And maybe when we watch Usher this weekend, we'll see a blueprint for how it's done. I would love that. And, and, you know, I will also be entertaining in my mind, my own personal halftime show with Brittany Howard leading the band. <laughs> oh I, man. Wouldn't, I, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a universe where that can happen. Well, Sheldon, thank you so much for talking about these records with me and um, helping me puzzle out where musical mastery is in 2024. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, <laughs> Anne. It's been a blast. This podcast was produced by Joaquin Kotler. We had editorial support from Jacob Gans. We'll be back next week. You can subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org backslash music newsletter. And this week I'm writing about Taylor Swift at the Grammys and what it means to be an I versus a we. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.